Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm acting as the moderator for today's topic, which is the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, also referred to as AC21, where we'll go over a whole bunch of changes that may impact you as an employer or your employees or both. I'm honored to present to you two of my brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein, who's been with the firm almost, what, 10 years? I'm losing track. Close, okay, close to. But once you cross, you're either the hump before whatever. And a member of the firm. Um, and Jessica Beaver, who's also been with the firm a while, seven years. Lucky seven, Jess. Um, and so we will go over some of the uh, topics primarily dealing with, as I just said, the AC-21 issues. Just by way of background on AC-21, the law itself was passed back in October 2000. Bill Clinton was the president, so that you can, you know that's a ways away. So it's almost 17 years now. Oh, my God. Um, we then have a whole bunch of memos. In fact, not too many memos. A whole bunch of memos over the years, over the past 17 years. But it took several years, I remember, for the first memo to come out from the time the law was passed. And even really until January of 2017, we really didn't have any regulations uh, on this uh, law. And basically, it has a whole bunch of topics dealing with H-1B-related issues. Um, and we also will discuss with you today some of the green card issues about, you know, how if you are getting an employee from uh, a person who has filed a green card with a different employer, how we can make that transition happen as seamlessly as possible with you playing a role as the new employer. So with that... Let me get our uh, H-1B resident expert on this panel, Alyssa Klein, to talk to us a little bit about how AC-21 works with H-1 extensions. Thank you, Sheila. So as many people may even know from personal experience, sometimes it takes many, many years to be able to actually file for your green card application from when you start the green card process or with the PERM. And in the meantime, people do try to stay here in a temporary classification like H-1B. But H-1B is limited to six years. So what AC-21 extensions allow is for people to get either one-year increment or three-year increment H-1B extensions as long as they're moving through that green card process and they hit a certain marker. Um, so first and foremost, the, the person would have to have been counted under the H-1B cap, but they don't necessarily have to be in the U.S. to use it. You can do consular processing or even a change of status. And the two bases, like I said, one year and three year. For the one year, it's uh, if the labor certification or the I-140 were filed more than 365 days ago and the case remains active, then you can go ahead and request a one-year H-1B extension. Um, and what the regulation did clarify was that it, it you don't have to have the labor filed 365 days 
um, by the time they start the six years, really at any point, once you've hit 365 days, you get that eligibility. The other basis for the three-year extension is if you have an approved I-140 and your priority date is not current, you're just waiting for your opportunity to file your green card application or for your priority date to become current. Now, what again, a, a new development with the regulations, if your I-140 was withdrawn by the employer, you can still use it for your three-year extensions provided that it wasn't withdrawn for 180 days after the approval. Okay, um, and the last thing to clarify is this issue of uh, remainder, or some people may call it recapture option. Um, it, for example, if someone is here in the U.S., they use, say, four years of their H-1B time out of the six years. Uh, maybe they don't have a green card case going. They've left the U.S. They've been out of the U.S. for more than more than a year at that point. Uh, this is somebody who would be eligible to file under the quota again or be able to reuse and pick up those last two years. So it's been clarified that there's not a time limit on being able to use that remaining time. And that must be a huge relief for a lot of people. But I know I just, the person I just actually spoke on the phone right before this conference call was asking, well, I got an I-140 approval like 10 years ago. I've been out of the country three or four years. That was always allowed. There was no six-year limit on those people who had an I-140 approval to get the three-year H-1 extension. There's no approval. They wouldn't get the extension of status because they aren't in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but like you just said, would be consular notification Mm -hmm. that they would have to undergo. But the good news now is that we don't have to worry that after a year it's automatic that they would have to wait because there was a whole lot of discussion, I remember, where it was, there was a six-year rule, and we were seeing a lot of RFPs. Yeah, we were seeing, and, and inconsistent too. Sometimes the cases would go through without a problem, mm-hmm. despite it being seven years ago mm-hmm. um, since the person had been in the country. And sometimes we would get an RFE. We saw denials come through. So it's good that this has now been clarified. That is a huge yeah. relief. Maybe we need to write up an article or topic on this. Honestly, it's because I think it's such a hot topic, and there's so many people so nervous about this topic. So, Jessica, let's go to you. What's this whole thing? Okay. Oh, I was just going to add on something to what Alyssa was saying. She was mentioning the new rule about the I-140 being revoked after 180 days. Everyone should keep in mind that it's, you know, revoked not for fraud or misrepresentation or material error. So, in fact, material error, if your I-140 was approved and you didn't have the proper education, you didn't have the proper experience, or let's say the employer didn't really have the ability to pay, and then it was revoked by the government, you would not be able to continue to use that. So, just to kind of caveat that I-140 revoked. Also with the new rule came the new 60-day grace period after cessation of employment. Um, I would tell people that cessation is a very, you know, term of art. We're still kind of seeing how the government is going to use it. So think cessation, not just termination, but basically anyone that's in E1, E2, E3, H1B, H1B1, L1, O1, or TN, has this 60-day grace period in which they can uh, change employer and change status, keeping in mind that they can do it once during each validity period um, of the petition. We have seen cases where someone was laid off by an employer. You know, for example, if they were consulting and let's say their project ended and they were laid off, the employer then tried to file a new petition within that grace period and basically it was denied. So it is to change employer or to change status is it's not really to be used as a tool 
when let's say that a project has ended and then the employer is refiling for a new project once work becomes available. So just keep that in mind as well. So just to be clear, when you say cessation of employment, you're saying so even if the employee potentially just quits or has a personal family emergency, has to stop working, possibly that could work because that is technically cessation. It's not termination because initially I think most of us thought it was, oh, it was no fault of your own. You didn't quit. It was factors outside of your control. But now we're saying that there's a gray area in the way the statute, in the way they have issued the regulations. I think we just have to wait and see, you know, as decisions come out, how how USCIS applies that. Um, And the other thing I I do want to touch on as well, uh, it is a 60-day grace period, but that 60 days could be shortened if your I-94 is is less than that duration. So if my current H-1 status ends in 45 days, I don't get those additional 15 days. So whichever is shorter is, is what the person is, is working within. Okay. So the next topic that we want to discuss with you is this whole issue about cap-exempt H-1s. Um, so this final rule clarifies that a U.S. nonprofit petitioner or employer that seeks exemption from the H-1B cap based on affiliation with an institution of higher education may now establish the exemption in one of four different ways. It keeps the three existing criteria and actually adds a clarification or sort of this addition fourth criteria. So for that, let me jump to Alyssa. Sure. So uh, I'll just run through the four different um, types of uh, uh, employer-based uh, cap exemption. Um, one is that it is uh, for a nonprofit entity that is connected or associated with an institution of higher education through shared or- ownership or control by the same board or federation. Two, that it is operated by an institute of higher education, or three, that is it is attached to an institution of higher education as a member, branch, cooperative, or subsidiary, or four, and this is the new one, uh, that the nonprofit has a formal written affiliation agreement which uh, establishes an active working relationship between the nonprofit entity and the institution of higher education for the purpose of research or education and a fundamental activity of the nonprofit entity is to directly contribute to the research or education mission of the institution of higher education. <laughs> so it's a lot of words, but basically what it, it, it provides is a slightly lower bar to meet for these relationships. Um, we're not talking about control here. Uh, fundamental activity is not quite as high of a standard um, as a primary purpose. Um, and, you know, we did go through a number of years where um, the USCIS got tighter on, on this issue, and we had a memo about honoring, you know, past past employers' uh, grant of exemption. Um, so this has been, I think, a long time coming to get this clarification and hopefully uh, provide an, an additional way for uh employers to satisfy this requirement. And it's great that they're trying to make it more flexible as opposed to, because every, I feel the general fear has been that starting 2017, things are becoming tighter and worse and more difficult. So it's kind of nice that there's at least the way the, the rule is written in the comments that this is supposed to become a little bit more flexible. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's also int- useful that it can be any one of these four criteria mm-hmm. that can be satisfied or met to qualify for the H-1B cap exemption and exemption from the Acquia fee. Right, exactly. And that's not to mention just, you know, we're talking about nonprofits and affiliations here. Um, but certainly, you know, you do have, you know, the institutions of higher education on their own always qualify. And then you have nonprofits that are primarily engaged in, in uh, basic or applied research uh, on their own can, can also qualify. And I thought what was also interesting is where they said uh, anything that is attached to an institution of higher education as a member, a branch, a cooperative, or even a subsidiary. I don't ever remember the subsidiary language, but I guess it was there and people just, I don't remember discussing or working on ever a case where they had subsidiary and you were trying to claim exemption. So it's out there, so use it if you feel you can qualify and the rule still hasn't changed about working for or at and mm-hmm. so the at part is still for many consulting companies valid because most of them are like, well, where well, I'm not cap exempt, I'm not nonprofit. Well, but if you're able to send your employee or consultant to work at a university or at a cap exempt facility, you still get all of these benefits of being cap exempt. Right. You just have to establish in that case the nexus between the person's role there and the purpose of the either the institution or the nonprofit. Okay, good. So the next topic we're going to talk about is AC21 portability under Section 214N. And I'm going to ask Jessica to take away this. In my role as a moderator, (laughs) I give her that uh, topic to briefly discuss. So basically, this provision of the law allows an individual to work upon the filing of an H-1B. As you may have heard, sometimes there are risks in doing this because you're not waiting for the approval. You've gotten the receipt notice and are are moving companies, especially right now, premium processing is suspended. When government processing times become longer, this can become more of an issue. Basically, for for this, um, the 240-day rule does not apply to change of employers. So if you have an extension with the same employer, that's when this rule goes into effect that you get 240 extra days of work. So therefore, if it is with a new employer, then it's it's essentially unlimited, the amount of days that you can work. Because Which doesn't make any sense because it should be more generous. And it, I guess this was all pre-AC21 when the law allowed 240 days with a prior with your own current employer and said if you're changing employers then you can't even start working till it's approved in the olden days pre-AC21 law then they changed the law but you would think that they would be kinder and nicer and give the same unlimited exemption if you're extending with the same employer but it's almost like you're being penalized now so as an employee you're better off in a sense getting that unlimited time to keep working while the petition is especially with premium processing Uh, having been uh, at least eliminated temporarily. But I would caution people, there is a concept that came from the bridging memo, is that if you, you know, have an H-1B petition and you filed a new one with a new employer and you're working and it's still being processed, but you have a wonderful opportunity with, let's say, Employer C and they are applying for an H-1B for you, you get to be in that position that if there is a withdrawal or uh, denial of that intermediate petitionary, petition that um, it could really cause a, a a denial or an issue where you won't get uh, the status approved for your petition. I think you're talking about the Janice Polodny bridging memorandum from like a long time ago. But yeah, so that's that is definitely a concern because if the intermediate petition does not get approved, then they're saying this, the new one may, because it's piggybacking off of that, 
could potentially fall on its face. Right. And, and you have two scenarios. You're going to potentially have a scenario where the person's underlying I-94 has expired and from their the first original employer, or, or it may be unexpired. Um, so I, I don't think with that it's feasible necessarily without doing a request for a late filing that the third company would be able to get that I-94 if the second company, that bridging company, um, denies, gets a denial or withdraws the case. Correct. So was that the loophole that they were trying to close? So I think we're talking about the concurrent, um, right. So there's there's the concurrent H-1B petition, which literally means that you have two H-1B employers petitioning for you that you're going to work for at the same time. And until this memo, until this new regulation came out, um, USCIS was approving the CAP subject employer who's piggybacking on that CAP exempt petition for a full duration of the H-1B, regardless of how long the CAP exempt employer's case is good for. So you could have, be working for your nonprofit or university, have an approval that's good for another six months. Um, but you want to do a second job with a private company, they file the petition for you, and they get a full three years. Okay. Now, what this regulation clarifies is that they're going to be more strict about maintaining that CAP-exempt employment. So the CAP subject employer is no longer going to be able to get that longer duration. They are going to be limited to whatever the current cap exempt employers case is good for. So in that example, they would only get a six month H-1B, which matches the cap exempt employer, the university's employer, for example. The other thing that they have said is that that employment, that dual employment must be maintained throughout. And that if the employee leaves that cap exempt employer and then only works for the CAP subject employer, that it is within USCIS's discretion and ability to go ahead and revoke the private employer's petition, the otherwise CAP subject employer. So basically, they've closed this loophole, which sort of makes sense. Now, it it doesn't affect in terms of numbers a huge percentage, especially with consulting companies and others that were using this or having concurrent employment where people were working two or more jobs when you're already working 40, 50, 60 hour week, work weeks. But it is something that the government looked. So there were a lot of very positive things with the AC-21 regulations that came out effective from January 17th of 2017. But this was one of those that they actually closed a loophole. So next, we go to the topic of AC-21 and green card portability. So till now, we were discussing H-1 and H-1-related issues, non-immigrant issues. And now we get to the green card or permanent uh, resident status. So obviously, as most of you remember, nuts and bolts, AC-21 basically allows an employee to join your company uh, if they're switching from employer A to your company, employer B, if the prior I-140 was approved, the 45 was spending minimum 180 days, and the new job with the new company is considered to be in the same or similar job occupational classification. So with that, I'll ask Jessica to go over like the, some of the memos. Sure. So the same or similar job classification kind of has wrapped it up wrapped it up with a March 2016 memo where the government has talked about same or similar, has finalized 
and given examples of uh, the ONET of using codes such as, for example, 1511.31 and 1511.32 by looking at parts of different codes and how they're related. But I think one of the most important things, especially for those uh, employees who have had their green cards pending for 10 years and have kind of climbed the totem pole, so to speak, is that this memo allows for career progression. So what this means is it does not mean that someone is going from software developer to CEO, but someone can certainly be going from software developer to lead software developer. Senior software developers, exactly. all that stuff. Senior And so programmer. basically, as long mm-hmm. as they're you know managing people that kind of perform the underlying job duties that they did on their labor, you know, that should work. And this memo, you know, kind of gave a sigh of relief to those people that, you know, we're wanting to climb, but, you know, we're very nervous that their green card would not be same or similar. So it kind of gave that breath of fresh air, so to speak. Sure. But in terms of finalizing the same or similar job occupational classification, did it become more difficult, narrower, broader? I, I, because initially we used to think it was very broad. You could go switch, for example, from working in a software company or in uh, having taught at a university into a software company, but now it seems to say maybe not? I think it's more about the actual position and really honing in on those job duties because, you know, somebody could have been at a big corporation and now want to move to a startup or even to, you know, self-port and start their own company, which which is fine. It's more of looking at the, the job code and making sure that people are still, you know, kind of within those job codes in the ONET that it talks about. So, for example, you're not jumping from, let's say, in the ONET, a 15 code, then something like a 20 code that's, un, you know, unrelated. Okay. And one of the other things is that we've often talked about is the notification to the government, because all the time, that's the most common question that I get asked by anybody who's got a pending 485 is, well, I understand I'm not required by law to file some kind of AC-21 notification to the USCIS. And that still is true with respect to the January 2017 um, regulation. But at least at the Murthy Law Firm, over the last 17 years, we have encouraged it and strongly recommended it um, because we have seen notice of intentions to deny or denial notices issued based on the fact that the USCIS said the employee never notified us, we didn't get information, we don't know, and how so how can we compare or decide whether it's same or similar job occupational classification. Um, and as you saw, as we just referred to it, um, there is now a new supplement, J, that needs to be filed from January 2017. And I'm going to ask Alyssa to describe a little bit of what's what else is required under the supplement. Sure. So the supplement, J, like you said, is not required by law to be submitted, you know, in general as you're changing jobs. But there are two points in time where you would be required to provide it. And that's going to be upfront with the 485 filing or if you get a request for evidence and the USCIS is asking for it. So the the form itself is, is fairly straightforward. It, asks, it, it requires signatures from the employee, the employer, and if there's an attorney, the attorney. Um, so this is new that, that, that it's no longer just a letter from the company, that USCIS is actually asking the new employer to sign off on a form that's submitted in connection to the case. Uh, the form will ask for information about the job, the title, the duties, uh, the occupational code, like what Jessica was just talking about here, um, and then certain basic company data, tax identification number, income, incorporation date number of employees. So what's important to keep in mind when this data is being um, completed in the form is to think as a company is, you know, has um, 
is your company publicly, the information publicly available? Is that up to date and accurate? Because USCIS uses an uh, instrument called Vibe to verify company data, and they pull from Dun and Bradstreet. And so it's a good idea if you're registered with Dun and Bradstreet, go online. Is the company information correct? Did you move recently? Is the address up to date? Things of that nature. Okay. And then also make sure uh, it is up to date, your company data is up to date with the state uh, that you're registered. Okay. So if I can ask you a quick question, Alyssa, which is not very clear, mm-hmm. if the employer now has to suddenly add this information about their gross and net income, number of employees and you know their federal employer, are they doing an ability to pay test? No, but that's a great point. No, they're just trying to make sure that the, the company is you know bona fide and there's a legitimate job offer available. And you're saying no so confidently because you <laughs> hope that they won't backpedal or we've already seen? We've we've seen some examples where even, let's say, a startup company with one employee or a company that's in kind of the research and development phase where they don't have a lot of money, we've already seen people get their green cards after getting requests for evidence this year with those fact patterns. But like, like Alyssa was mentioning, there's no required ability to pay the wage, um, but you're, you are giving the government this information that may seem personal, but ultimately it's to make sure that the company has a bona fide job offer, that it's not just, you know, something made up. So they're kind of getting this information just to kind of use it for their vibe system. Yeah, I still think that if they know, if my income for this year is 100000 my expenses are 70000 and the salary is supposed to be seventy thousand. There isn't seventy thousand. There's only thirty thousand in the bank that that could potentially pay this employee. So they might come back at some point when they finally wake up, or maybe they're doing this in baby steps because this is more information that they had ever told us. They would ask us for an AC twenty one case. So it's interesting that they're, and the more they're beginning to scoop and uh, snoop rather, and with Trump and everything going on in the Trump administration. And no, I am not making a political statement. I'm just stating a fact about the investigations that are going on, because there's research that there's 33% more investigations of employers in general, um, that they might use this as an excuse. The next attorney general or the next department director for the Department of Homeland Security may say, aha, we don't think this case should be approved anymore because your you know, finances don't show that you can afford this person. Well, you have to keep in mind that even in preparing these forms, um, whether a company has to put NA for not applicable or, you know, uh, something of that nature mm-hmm. confidential, it still remains to be seen what other answers are going to be given. Because, for example, mm-hmm. the questions are gross uh, income and net income, which that's also how nonprofits don't work that way in their tax returns either. So there are these issues that come up where sometimes things may not, you know, be applicable and, um, you know, remain to be seen on how the form will be used. Ah, so you're saying for gross income, they could put 100000 plus and net income, they could just say not available and slash A and maybe try to circumvent the problem rather than bringing it to their attention that this could be a financial ability to pay issue. So you can see it's tricky and there's lots of gray areas and unanswered questions. So what are the other factors that employers need to keep in mind with respect to trying to continue the green card process? Well, one of the things I was just I was going to mention is that you as the employer may want to encourage the employee to file for AC21 because the government on their website says that you can actually follow up on this I-45 Supplement J 120 days after it's submitted for AC-21 purposes. It's the first time you've actually you get a receipt for it. It's not just, you know, a confirmation mm-hmm. that it's arrived at the government. So you can actually follow up for them to adjudicate if it's same or similar, even if your priority date's not current. Now, 
if um, it was filed with the I-45, of course, you have to wait for processing times. But it is kind of a sigh of relief that you do get a receipt number. You can follow up and kind of get that confirmation. And um, there actually is no filing fee. So that's something to, to keep in mind. The other thing just to keep in mind is that um, any beneficiaries of approved EB1A petitions um, for classification as an alien of extraordinary ability and EB2 petitions for naturalist national interest waiver are exempt from the job offer requirement. So if they're self-petitioners, they don't have to to use this. What I've seen come up in requests for evidence instead of a supplement J is just to show that they continue to work in their field, whether it be employment letters, uh, publications, manuscripts, that type of thing. Okay. And with respect to uh, the retention of the priority date, because that's, again, a very, very common question that's often raised. And in fact, the, con the two or three of the consultations I did just before start do doing this recording or this discussion today was the uh, retention of the priority dates, where generally absent a fraud or misrepresentation uh, or a material error, uh, the employee can always retain the priority date. So if you as an employer wish to file a new case for an employee that's very valuable for a consultant or an employee, you should be able to port the earlier priority date, do a fresh perm, a fresh I-140, and then request to port the earlier date. As you know, in the past, there was a difference between, and some of you may or may not even be aware of this, between the actual regulation and the USCIS guidance. So the good news is that now you can retain the priority date to be able to get the green card even faster. And so that clarification is uh, in consistency in favor of both the employer and the employee in that sense. In the next, we will talk briefly about the I-140 compelling circumstances EAD. And I know the Murthy Law Firm is one of the few places in the country that I know during the ELA conference in June, the ELA annual conference, where no law firm out of like thousands and thousands of lawyers had received any compelling circumstances EAD. And I know at our firm we have received um, some, certainly some approvals. So, Jess? Yeah, what I wanted to start out with is before kind of talking about the criteria for the I-140 Compelling Circumstances EAD is to really emphasize that this is a stopgap measure. It's not uh, wonderful just to get the EAD to maybe go to a job that pays more money or that's more, you know, lucrative. It's not going to help in the long term because it's not considered status. So, for example, eventually you would have to still apply for an H-1B in the future, leave the U.S. and come back in to be an H-1B status. Um, it also doesn't permit, you know, travel. This is just an EAD, um, kind of a stopgap measure. Ultimately, it also won't get you your green card because if you're using the I-140 compelling circumstances EAD, you're not maintaining non-immigrant status. So if your priority date becomes current, you won't be able to apply. Keeping that in mind, there are people out there where, you know, like I said, it's a stopgap measure. You know, life happens, things happen where a person who is the principal beneficiary of the I-140 um, is an E3, H-1B, H-1B1, O-1, or L-1 non-immigrant status, including the grace period. So that 60-day grace period that we talked about previously is important where they don't have an immigrant visa available and they have a compelling circumstance. So, for example, we have seen approvals for people that are in their grace period, maybe after a layoff happens, and um, can show that they're not able to work and can get, and can get the I-140 um, compelling circumstances EAD. 
Um, we still have a lot that are pending since this just went into effect a couple of months ago. But we also have seen denials where for despite the compelling factors, if someone still has the H-1B and still has the ability to work, the government is saying you really can use your H-1B you know, it's kind of not compelling enough. So it's a very factual analysis, um, even in the regulation, and, and talk about it. There's given some examples, but they're certainly not exhaustive. But it is definitely one of those things that, you know, people see on the internet, they think is so wonderful. But I always tell people, you know, speak to an attorney, kind of go through your factors, kind of go through your plan, because ultimately, like I said, it's not going to give you status or the ability to file for the green card in the future. Oh, so maybe we need to explain that again in another kind of letter article or something about mm-hmm. our compelling circumstances, EADs, truly the gift that you thought they might be. True. And, uh, you know, we have had cases that, that they are, you know, someone that has uh, a major medical issue where they, you know, are on death's doorstep and need to be here and also provide for their family and also have their family apply for this because you have to keep in mind if you're ever not maintaining status, neither are your dependents. So just keep those dependents in mind, just like you would H-1B, H-4. If you're filing for the I-140 EAD, you will want to file for that. For and since also. most of the people on this call are all employers, I'm sure they're relieved to know that the employees can just file a compelling circumstances EAD and fly away, far away from the nest, that they have to be sort of tied to you as an employer because there are very severe limitations in maintaining status, as Jessica just explained. And finally, the automatic extension of the EAD, what does that mean and how does that work, Alyssa? Right, no, so this is, you know, final point on EADs here. Another new benefit we have is uh, basically an automatic extension of someone's EAD uh, for 180 days past the EAD expiration date, provided that they timely filed their extension, okay? Now, it's limited, though. Um, And I think within the context of our listeners, it's going to be most relevant to those who have pending 485s. And as our listeners, I think, are also aware, um, many people have filed green cards many years ago. They're still pending. They're constantly renewing their EADs. So this provides a little relief if there's extra processing time on USCIS's side that that person will maintain uh, employment authorization for 180 days, which presumably will be long enough for USCIS to adjudicate the case. Now, before the January regulations, this was already something in place for students here on F1 who apply for STEM extension, okay? Again, provided that they timely file their STEM extension, they do get that 180 days for uh, to allow for processing. Um, on the flip side, uh, Employment-based non-immigrants, dependents who have EAD, like the spouses of H1s and L1s, L2 and H4, they do not get this benefit. So it's really important that these H's and H4s and EAD renewals are, are, are filed early, especially without premium processing, because if that EAD card expires... And, and everything else is still pending, that the individual needs to stop working. They lose their work authorization. And just as a reminder, you know, these applications can be filed 180 days out. Okay. So tr- in, right, until Instead we have of the 120 day rule like before. Right. So this is 180 day for the non-immigrant applications. And when you're concurrently filing the H4 EAD with it, you just add, that's fine. It can go along with the H-1 and with the H-4 at that earlier point in time. Um, And again, until we have premium processing back up and running fully, 
people want, should consider, you know, starting those renewals earlier rather than later. If Absolutely. So I would say also just keep in mind, employers, that if you have people coming to you that look like their validity period on their EAD based on their 45 application is really short and you think they may not have work authorization, if they've timely filed and have a receipt notice, you'll be able to use that receipt notice and old EAD to do your I-9 verification and still bring that employee on. Show that they have validity for, to work for eligibility for 180 days. And conversely, if they have give, bring you the receipt notice because they are so confused about this crazy 180-day rule that applies to 485 EADs but not to H-4 and L-2 EADs, then that does not give work permission for you to file the I-9 as an employer if you have H-4 EADs and L2 EADs. Um, so as we can see that from the January 17, 2017 uh, regulations, which address a lot of the issues on AC21, um, so it's been over six months right now, we are seeing some really good pieces of news and good clarifications that are beneficial for you as employers and for your employees. That will be a win-win. On the other hand, we saw some closed loopholes and some issues that we need to, that you need to be aware of as an employer uh, in terms of whether it's EAD extensions or making sure if your employee is working at a cap-exempt facility compared to before. And as smaller companies, you need to be mindful in terms of updating the information uh, as Alyssa had explained earlier with Vibe and with Dun & Bradstreet, because the government wants to make sure that the employer or you as the company is bona fide and legitimate, et cetera. And as you can see from just the level of discussion that the three of us had today, we really touched the tip of the iceberg with respect to the complications and complexities that exist in U.S. immigration law. There are ever-changing rules, there are ever-changing regulations, and a lot of it, there are no laws and no regulations. It's Some of it is memos, and some of it is just gray area, and some of it is us looking at, because we process so many thousands of cases, uh, we are able to monitor and see trends that the government is looking at. So you, if you really need a strong, knowledgeable, amazing team of immigration lawyers and a law firm on your side, you know where to come. The amazing team at the Murthy Law Firm is always on your side to help educate you and empower you on issues dealing with U.S. immigration law. Uh, so with that, we look forward to you having a wonderful summer, and we look forward to continuing to staying in touch with you and continuing to guide you and help you. And as I'm getting ready to wrap up, because I know we try to do this in 30 to 45 minutes, I see Jessica waving her flag saying, I want to say something. Just keep in mind that the Form I-45 and including the I-45 Supplement J is has a new edition as of August 25th, so make sure you keep that in mind. That's true. That was on my discussion notes to talk about the August 25th date. So if you, as an employer, is filing, absolutely, that date is very is literally around the corner, about three weeks away. So, yeah, we, we need to be on the lookout. And again, between the time that you listen to this teleconference and again another month who knows what else the government's going to change or implement or make happen so on my behalf of myself Sheila Murthy as the moderator for today's panel along with Alyssa Klein Jessica Beaver and the entire team at the Murthy Law Firm we thank you so much for joining us today and we look forward to continuing to guide and empower you I hope you have a wonderful rest of the summer